ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Hi, and welcome to the History Listen and to Dusted, the human story of dust in Australian mines, from gold to coal to asbestos. And today we head down the coal mines. My name's Van Battam. I spent my youth in the old coal mining community of Bulungong on the New South Wales south coast. And the job that put me through uni was transcribing hundreds of hours of oral history from the region's retired mine workers before, as they said, the dust got them. Today, we put coal under the microscope and the brutal fight for recognition of dusted miners in Australia's coal fields. I'm the son of the son of the son of a collier's son. Go down. Coal dust flows in the veins where the blood should run. Go down. Five steel ribs and an iron backbone teeth that can bite through rock and black To tell you that story, I make an emotional return home to Wollongong with some people who really know what they're talking about. Let me introduce you. Unionist Paddy Gorman. The coal mining industry was always regarded as one of the most hazardous in the country. There's two things down there that'll kill you. There's the dust and there's the explosions. Barry Swan, third generation of a New South Wales coal mining family. I sat with my grandfather the night he died. He fought the ravages of dust disease. He didn't want me to go into coal mining because of the conditions. Medical historian Karina Fitzgerald. Anthracosis is a dust disease from coal mining. Your lungs become like the rock that you've been mining. One of the pathologists said if he cut through the lungs, it blunted his scalpel. Dr Pamela Kinnear. There were plenty of people back then who would say a good lungful of dust protects you against tuberculosis isn't a bad thing. And the wonderful radio ballad trio singing The Big Hewer. Crawling, mauling, striving, driving in the mad race at the cold face, work and sweat, that's all you get when you're a miner. There's no denying the enormous impact of coal mining in the history of modern Australia. The discovery of coal by British colonists signalled the continent's economic potential, just at the time the Industrial Revolution was really getting going. When a vast coal seam was found running through the escarpment around Wollongong, it seemed this beautiful place had got lucky too. But had it? I went to the archives of the Miners' Union Library to find out and turned up an amazing 1940s film. The Illawarra district of New South Wales is a narrow strip of land running along the south coast, washed by the waters of the Pacific and backed by mountains. It is one of the richest districts in Australia. And on the south coast in 1797, coal was first discovered in Australia. The first coal miners were convicts. In the mid-19th century, the coal fields were opening up throughout New South Wales, including down around the Illawarra, around Wollongong Way, and further out west out towards the Blue Mountains. 
they needed coal for boats and trains and for just about everything else. So the coal fields had a rapid expansion. This coal is suitable for the making of high-grade coke, and thousands of tonnes a year travel to the coking works. It was all pick, shovel and blasting powder. Coke for the blast furnaces at Newcastle and Port Kembla. Coke to be shipped all over Australia as well as abroad. Back in those days, preference for the employer and the employee was get the coal out, bugger the atmosphere. I don't think there was any thought of, I'm going to die from it. That was accepted as the norm. Dust. Mine owners on the south coast have drawn huge profits from the earth. It's always dusty. There were shocking conditions in the Illawarra. There was a lot of dust. Now, there wasn't a great deal understood about the damage to the dust, but they knew there were a lot of young men who were coughing their lungs up and who were dying prematurely. And in the very early days, if you see photographs of early miners, you see nearly all the adults had moustaches. And in some cases, they believed that that helped filter the dust. Looking back at it now, you think, well, that's crazy. They didn't realise the fine particles that were going into their lungs. The curse of underground is the dust. Dust is the giant killer, but it doesn't strike all at once, uh, but he likes its time. Conditions in New South Wales coal mines in the early days of the 20th century were basic, brutal and dangerous, just like they were in England, Scotland and Wales. But when the Great Depression of the 1920s and 30s hit, coal mining families like Barry Swans were so desperate for work, they migrated to the Illawarra in droves. My grandfather arrived in Australia from Scotland in 1922 and uh, found work at South Bulli Coal Mine, which is on the south coast. I can remember my pop coming home in his pit clothes and, and he was covered in coal dust. My nana would have the copper going and uh, he'd get in the bath and as kids we took great pleasure in going in there and rinse and pop down with, with the water out of the, out of the copper. You can feel it getting into your eyes and your throat and you come out into the baths and you're blowing it out your nose and spitting it out. Those early miners brought many of their traditions and their collectivism with them. And once settled in Australia, the migrants began to raise their collective voice. I think it was well understood in places like Wales and England that miners were dying of anthracosis. But I think one of the problems is that often the symptoms don't occur until you've been in the industry for quite a while. The mining companies seemed well aware of the long time lapse between first entering a mine and developing symptoms of disease. Because they played for time, they found loopholes and promoted medical opinion that questioned the workers' claims. Really from the 1920s through the 30s, the arguments about whether coal dust itself was a kind of substance that could cause lung disease was really a matter of dispute. When a coal miner would go to a doctor with a bad cough or persistent chest pain or something like that, the first question they were asked by the doctor was, are you a smoker? 
And if you were, and, and an awful lot of them were, most of them were, actually, first thing they'd say, well, that's it, you know, put it down to smoking. <coughs> Dust diseases were an older miner's lot in life. A boy would leave school at 14. School days over, come on then, John. Follow his dad and his uncles and his older brothers. Time to be getting your pit boots on. Into the mines. On with your shot and moleskin trousers, time you was on your way. Many people were prematurely aged. Time you was learning the pitman's job and earning the pitman's pay. My uncles of my dad's era, they stayed in the mines and I know one of them dropped dead walking up to the pit hill. And I, it's almost light, time you was off to the anthracite. <laughs> the morning mist is in the valley, it's time you was on your way. You knew when Dad was going to work, especially on the colder autumn and winter days, you could hear the hawking and the spitting and the coughing as they were getting ready to go to work. They either rode a push bike or worked, and you could hear them going up the hill, coughing and carrying on. So I'm, it was quite evident there was a problem, and it was in the lungs. No one went into the mines expecting to live too long. But the sheer physical toughness demanded by the work encouraged a culture of solidarity amongst the workers. Barry Swan. The dust was always something that the miners campaigned about. They campaigned about it in the 30s and the 40s. They wanted the mine to take responsibility because they wanted compensation. Companies being as they are, they fought every case to the maximum to resist a compensation payment to a dusted miner. The employers argued very strongly that what was going on in the industrial disputes was what they called a dust hysteria. But the miners fought the disinformation campaigns, insisting that the truth about dust come out. Their self-produced newsreels stated short and horrifying facts painting the companies as black as their lungs were. Every year, over 200 miners are forced to leave the pits because they are dusted. The average age of a dusted miner has fallen from 50 years to 40. For over 50 years, mine owners on the south coast have drawn huge profits from the earth. But for the miner, the dividend is death. It was the 1930s and the mine owners were getting worried about the rising militancy of unionised workers. They went into damage control. Pamela Kinnear was astounded by the lengths the companies went to. They started to mobilise all of the medical opinion that was around to say this can't possibly be true because coal dust doesn't cause disease. It's an inert substance. There's no basis for saying coal dust causes disease. The employers really made use of the medical disputes and the lack of a single consensus about the role of coal dust in causing occupational disease. Around the late 1930s, early 1940s, 
mechanisation came in and you had machines on the ground and that created even models. And yet by the outbreak of the Second World War, the conservative Menzies government sided with the mine owners, trying to silence the troublesome workers. The fight to have coal dust recognised as a legitimate occupational hazard went on for a number of years. Because of the dust, production is falling. Because of the dust, young men are going to other jobs. Ted Whitehouse, 65, 40 years in the mine, seven years dust. With the war ongoing and expanding, there were growing demands on Australia for more power, more steel, and a reliable workforce to produce them. When John Curtin replaced Menzies as Prime Minister in 1941, his new Labor government started listening to the coal miners. Conservative governments always favoured the mining companies. And when Labor governments come in, like Curtin and Chifley, the miners had great expectations. There were some really important legislative amendments that happened in 1941, laws to allow dust disease to be more easily compensated. And that led in part to the miners being the first blue-collar workers to get a, a pension at 60 years of age because they realised that environment, if you'd been working in it from when you were 14 years of age, if you made it to 60 years of age, and there were not many miners who actually lived beyond 65. Ten is a day you do not call your walk and call your breathing, call your talk and call your dream and call now you're a miner. I think if I cut my fingers and it bled, it would just come out black. Crawling, mauling, striving, driving in the mad race at the cold face, work and sweat, that's all you get when you're a miner. With the end of World War II came the death of John Curtin. But with his replacement, Ben Chifley, the new Labor leadership was ready to address more of the miners' complaints. The response of the mining companies was, of course, to seek legal counsel. When the Chifley government came in, they put a royal commission in place in 1946 to examine the coal industry and the reorganisation of it and the role that uh, the health issues were playing. The company's evidence convinced the Royal Commission, but it did not convince the Prime Minister. The Chifley government said, I'm not having that. We think there's enough of a problem here that we're going to step in anyway. And like all government decisions, there was an economic imperative. After the war, Australia basically decided it was going to leave behind its develop off the sheep's back notion and instead it was going to be an industrial, a modern industrial nation. We were going to become a domestic exporter of coal as well, but also we needed our own coal for our own rebuilding. We had a housing problem, we needed to industrialise, we needed steel for that. So coal was suddenly central to our vision of ourselves as a nation which allowed the workers again to say, well, if that's true, then you've got to do something about the fact that we're dying in the mines. They have waited, waited for legislation that will give them the right to live their few remaining years in comfort and security. 
The delegates return and they tell the miners that the government has agreed to introduce measures ensuring safety methods in mines. Prime Minister Ben Chifley became a hero to the mining towns. But the love did not last long. The promised legislation was in writing, but action was slow. And the miners' frustration came to a head a few months later. Now, in 1946, there were two coal miners at Coromel Mine, which is down the southern coal fields. They died within two days of each other from pneumoconiosis, or black lungs, though, as we call it nowadays. And that was the trigger point for more action. Sydney streets, they march. Then a man tries to rush forward to attack a newsreel cameraman. This cameraman. Spectators wrestle with him. You had this kind of confluence of factors that came into play. Inadequate health measures, low wages, bad conditions. It led to the first of what we call the, the Great Dust Demonstrations in the late 1940s. Their wives and daughters march with them. They know that unless there is safety in the mines, men will sit down on the job, mines will be idle, factories will stop work. Without coal, the whole nation will be paralysed. What had been a campaign for decades suddenly reached a crescendo. And there was mass meetings. Miners demand that the government act now. It's fascinating going back through the archives and the newspapers of the time and seeing these images of these massive coal mine protests down the main streets of Sydney. They were demanding that the legislated standard for the exposure to dust that had been put into the Coal Mines Regulation Act, they demanded that the Act be amended to enforce that and that employers actually be made to comply to stop the amount of dust in the mines themselves. They realised that you had to have proper water suppressants to contain the dust. But there were also rules introduced that made it possible to measure the amount of dust that there were in particular places. And you weren't allowed to walk in those until you could get those dust levels, this the theory, those dust levels down to what they call their permissible levels. Chifley was very supportive of the miners. The other thing that was going on in Australia at the time, especially in the mining unions, is that they were being populated by a sort of a communist ethos. So the Communist Party of Australia was quite linked to the mining unions. So Chifley and his government were quite worried about having to sort of pacify, to some extent, the workers' demands. Because if they didn't pacify the workers' demands, that would give fuel to the sort of communist influence in the mining unions. Police push forward as the crowd becomes noisier. The communists clash with spectators. Brawlers are hustled away as more fights break out in six different sections. Now it was 1949. The Soviets were testing an atomic bomb, the Cold War was heating up, and the fear of communism was catching in the electorate. While the perils of coal dust had been recognised, the union was now pushing for industrial compliance with worker involvement. Chifley's government was on notice. A crowd of around 40,000 people gather at an ALP rally on the coal strike. Communists are present in force and while most onlookers are attentive... The government knew it had to create something and that's when the compromise was reached around the formation of the Joint Coal Board and its associated powers. 
a joint coal board will regulate the mines and they'll ensure proper health and safety standards, control of dust and regulations governing the amount of dust that was permissible in certain areas had to be enforced. You could almost trace historically the improvements in the coal industry by the the growth of unionism. And then when he uh, saw the result, well, damn, there was a sense of pride. And the Joint Coal Board was charged with modernising the industry and addressing the health problems of the industry. It's the toil and the sweat wins the coal that you get when you're working away in the hole. To monitor the health of anybody who came into the industry after that. Queensland was offered to come into it, but they declined. Then away with your man and see if you can do the work of the dog. The Joint Coal Board had a very, very active tripartite committee. It was a dust-standing committee that consisted of employers, medical officers and workers. It was a real corporatist approach, a real tripartite approach to saying, let's solve this together. It was incredibly successful, incredibly cooperative process for a number of years, and Queensland did not have anything like that in place. At the time of the Joint Coal Board's formation, most of Australia's coal was produced in New South Wales, with pockets of brown coal mined in Victoria and South Australia. Queensland had the biggest part of the rest of the industry, the tripartite board formed without them, and fostered two decades of successful cooperation. It saw Australia's international reputation for safety standards rise. In 1968, the Australians announced to a major pneumoconiosis conference that Australia had virtually eradicated coal dust disease from its industry. The Queensland industry had not been recording cases at the time and so it looked like a fairly reasonable thing to say Australia's got control of this. And what's important, there were no new cases emerging at that time. Fast forward through to the 1970s and constructive collaboration began to unravel. After a series of economic shocks, the 1980s saw employers seize the opportunity to reassert themselves. Now the mining companies wanted to self-regulate, complaining about a nanny state telling them what to do. The Australian Coal Association formed to represent the coal producers. But the broader mining community was concerned that by dismantling the Joint Coal Board, the positive health benefits from a cooperative worker-employer relationship would be dismantled as well. Barry Swan watched the changing of the guard. In 1990, with the, um, the arrival of Paul Keating as Prime Minister and a deregulation agenda... Along comes a coal association with a woman at the helm who actually told me, no such thing as a dusted coal miner, they're all malingerers. I had a vision of my grandfather dying. Eventually, 
She moved out of the coal industry and went into the asbestos industry with Hardy's. I don't have to tell you who she was, but you'll see what her reaction was towards asbestos-affected people. And you can bet we'll be following that asbestos trial in the next episode of Dusted. But back at the now self-regulating Australian coalface, you'll never guess what happened next. A few years ago, Paddy Gorman was called back from retirement to visit Queensland's coal mines because miners were getting sick. We, we were horrified by the first few cases that we discovered of black lung re-emerging in Queensland. At that time, the Minerals Council, which was the employer's body, accused us of scaremongering and exaggerating things. As far as I can tell, Queensland was not running any kind of surveillance system on its workforce for dust disease at all. We were told that the first new case of black lung disease had emerged in Queensland. This is not just a re-emergence, it's a re-identification of a problem that has been there for a long time. The people who have been identified, and even at this stage, those 350, they're only the top of the iceberg. And there's still up to 25,000 out there. It's similar to what's happened with the silica walkers and with the James Hardy walkers, with the asbestos. I mean, it's the same game being played out in different industries. And it's an absolute disgrace, an absolute abrogation of responsibility from these big employers who are making a fortune from them to actually look after them and try and support them. The return of black lung to Australia shows that if the employers aren't forced to keep the mines safe, they don't keep the mines safe. Because it's slow and gradual onset and not as interesting as an explosion, it's harder to make an exciting story from. But it's easy to make an absolutely heartbreaking story when you find people who are suffering dust disease. It is one of the worst diseases to encounter in anybody. If you said, here's a clean piece of paper, write the plan on it, well, I'd start off with this. To the mine works, when you come to get a job at the mine, be aware, this can happen. People think, oh, I'm going to get crushed by some coal. Odds are you won't. But the odds are you could be breathing in respirable dust. (coughs) You can't see that, but it's there. Our last word goes to Barry Swan, who's still supporting the younger miners, even though he's now fighting for his own life. Black lung disease. It's incurable, but it's bloody avoidable. Out of the dirt and darkness I was born Go down Out of the hard black coal face I was torn Go Go down down. Lived in the shade of the high pit heap I'm still down there where the seams are deep And digging the coal away in the hole Go down You've been listening to Settling the Dust, the second show of our Dusted series. Songs were from the radio ballad The Big Hewer, by Ewan McColl, Peggy Seeger and Charles Parker. Additional music was by David Bates. The sound engineer was John Jacobs and the program was produced by Ros Blewett. I'd like to dedicate this episode to the memory of Wollongong mine workers Freddie Moore and Ray Harrison 
who gave this scrubby kid a job, and so much else to so many more. I'm Van Bannum. Thanks for joining me today. See you next time. I'm the son of the son of the son of a collier's son. Go down. Cold dust flows in the veins where the blood should run. Go down. Five steel ribs and an iron backbone teeth that can bite through rock and black stone work in me time away in the mine. Go down. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.